Uh, well, I'm just, you know, we synchronize our, our time, Aaron, using time.is, and it also tells us uh, what day it is. And it also says that today is Anosmia Awareness Day. So happy Anosmia Awareness Day to you, Aaron, and to you all know the what? listeners. It's, that's actually really good because I, I literally wasn't aware of anosmia. Yeah, and now you are. You want to know what anosmia um, is? Uh, that's people who can't smell. Indeed. Apparently. Yeah. Which uh, on some days is certainly a blessing and other days certainly not. Um, Growing up with anosmia, I never knew anyone else with the disorder and it was just something I accepted and lived with. But I soon learned that there were many people all over the world in the same situation and different groups doing important research. I started Insomnia Awareness as a way to bring together everyone interested in insomnia and anosmia, encourage research and spread awareness. Insomnia, anosmic insomnia. You you can't so, sleep or, nor smell. <laughs> it's a it's 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 supported by uh, research centers, including the the Manel Chemical Senses Center, uh, ad, yeah. and advocacy organizations. Fifth Sense. <laughs> I'm also seeing that it's po- International Polar Bear Day. So, what if congrats. a polar bear? But can't smell. What? Anosmic polar bear. <laughs> Stupid, annoying questions. Well, I just yes. want to... Um, we've we've had some advice shared uh, with us um, from a, a gentleman named Zuby, who I understand is a musician in the UK. Um, and this uh-huh. was this was surfaced to us by uh, Hussein Is that Kisfani. like an NB? I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know. Um, okay. not certain. Don't want to make any, any judgment one way or the other on that one. That's um, the correct says, stance, I believe. Zuby says, some unorthodox advice for young people and entrepreneurs. Make your career, business, and reputation as anti-fragile as possible. Do not allow any individual audience or ideology to box you in or hold you con- hostage. If you heed this advice, you'll be cancel-proof. Too many people try to win favor by catering to SJWs, the quote, woke, unquote, or a single political activist or religious group. This may seem expedient, but it's like building your house on quicksand. Keep it real from the beginning. Own yourself and nobody can own you. It's totally fine to have your views and opinions, but make sure they are yours. Don't become a fake mouthpiece for anybody else. Don't compromise your integrity and core values. You will get wrecked otherwise. Either that or you'll live in constant anxiety. And Hussein retweeted this and just said, what does this mean, LMAO? Uh, and I, I have to ask you, um, did you understand any of that or was it just word salad? Maybe if you read it in like a like a, a London accent, like you go, oh, you're just some unorthodox advice for some... Oh, no, no, I did South African. <laughs> 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 a London accent like yeah some unorthodox advice for young people what if what if Zuby but a Swede <laughs> <laughs> what if Zuby but German ich habe some eine advice for, for, for make for your Duke. career business and reputation as anti-fragile as possible yeah Hussein says, I'm genuinely fascinated by how ubiquitous this sort of writing is. None of it makes any sense. All of it is framed through this lens of financial independence equals getting to be anti-SJW slash own the libs. And it always ends with buy my self-improvement ebook. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know. It I want to make I don't understand. Up. Like, I don't, I don't, there's no, those are, those are words. I don't know what they mean, though, when you put I just them love together. the idea of building your house on quicksand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Like not, was, not just how, building that, your house on sand, but specifically no. quicksand. How is it even possible? Right. How do you yeah. do it? Like, are you are you like are you like craning things into the quicksand from, I think from a place of non quicksand? Are able to build your house on quicksand? Mad props. Yeah, actually, you you, you know, if you can build a house on quicksand, then yeah, you probably are uncancelable. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. My uh, um, my house just got canceled by the quicksand. This podcast episode already has a good energy, and I'm liking it. And yeah. I think I'm gonna attribute it to the fact that you and you revealed this before we started that you're you're I, podcasting. I, from I, your I couch. revealed it. <laughs> <laughs> I am podcasting from the couch today. Uh, I uh, yeah. Um, I uh, <laughs> I don't uh, like that. One. <laughs> I don't like it. It sounds like you're hurting children. It sucks, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, I I moved my desk uh, downstairs uh-huh. to make it my office. And then I, I purchased a new desk. To, so I'm basically separating. I have had one desk thus far, which is the place where I did all my work and all my play and all my podcasting. Listening, um, some some unorthodox advice for young people and entrepreneurs. Exactly. You know, um, achieve a work-life balance by separating your, your desks. Absolutely. Um, that turned out to be untenable. Um, mm. So I've tried to split things up by putting my work stuff on a separate desk downstairs, and then I ordered a, a new desk for to replace the old desk, which was supposed to arrive on Thursday. Um, it is now Saturday as we record this, and I have I have not received my desk, about which I'm very angry. So I've <laughs> had just, to improvise. And it's I'm, just uh, on a FedEx truck circling your neighborhood. Indeed, yeah. It's apparently just going around the block in Chicago and then coming right back to the to the distribution center. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> I yeah, mean, so we just haven't followed up on your couch in a while, and I just thought I'm here on the couch. Point. Yeah, here here in my garage. <laughs> here in my, here on my couch. Knowledge. Um, yep. you have some, you have some disturbing. I'm just saying this. Sorry, what happened with T-Mobile Sprint? T-Mobile Sprint. So T-Mobile and Sprint recently merged. Uh, this was covered as part of our... Uh, I'm sorry, I just want to publicly apologize for that just terrible, terrible transition. Um, the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I just did such a bad job at it. <laughs> and I think I want to acknowledge it. I'm going to try wanna, to do better. Do you want to uh, Do you want to run it back here and give it a, another shot? Or... You know what? We can just do the reading rainbow transition. <laughs> T-Mobile hey, and Sprint. <laughs> speaking of transitions, yeah. <laughs> T-Mobile and Sprint are uh, apparently having to do a conscious uncoupling here. Well, the suggestion is that we should have them do this. So we we talked about this in our uh, encyclopedic bell system episode, myself and, yeah. and special guest Liz. Um, that was a good one, by the way. I like yes, it. many people are saying this, uh, and yeah. I appreciate them for for saying it. Cool. Um, but yeah, so T-Mobile and Sprint merged. Um, it was a bad idea; shouldn't have been allowed to happen. Um, and it turns out that this is being borne out now. Um, because basically, um, the Department of Justice, the Antitrust Division, basically said, "Okay, T-Mobile and Sprint, you can merge so long as you give Dish Network Boost Mobile." And also you give them access to your network while they build out their own network. This was the remedy, right? It's like, well, we're going to sort of um, create, you know, Dish Network is starting its own carrier 
Um, but in the meantime, as they build out their network, they're using T-Mobile and Sprint's network, except that um, T-Mobile has now uh, said that they're basically going to kick uh, Dish off their network. Come on. So <laughs> that's Can't believe cool. they do that. Yeah. Um, it, it I turns thought they out had the that, cool CEO and everything. Well, that's the thing is that he left shortly before they merged, you know, because oh. he's like, my job here is done. And now he's doing, I don't know what the heck he's doing. Um, oh, ew. Now it's some guy named Mike Sievert. Yeah, which ew. is way less exciting. Um, John Legere, come back, buddy. Oh, yeah. So basically, so Dish's customers use T-Mobile's 3G CDMA service. T-Mobile is uh -huh. shutting down this service. <laughs> so uh, Dish will <laughs> lose those customers unless they get a new device or a new SIM card. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. We love that. Um, T-Mobile is well, basically trying to get all of these Dish customers back in a way by sort of strangling Dish, which has already lost several hundred thousand customers. And yeah, um, you know, somebody, this is all silly. It shouldn't have been allowed to happen. We should undo it already, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. The good thing is at least like Boost Mobile um, isn't like catering to, you know, mostly vulnerable people you know so it, it won't harm yeah, anybody comes, right yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> uh speaking of businesses uh and things hurt, hurt, harding, harming people um i'm very upset I, many people may have heard about this but simple the bank is mm -hmm. uh shutting down mm. and uh this was the only good bank and I, I use them for a time. Yeah, I'm a simple customer. I have been for a long time, like from the from the beginning when it was like, a, quote unquote, in beta. Um, mm -hmm. And I just really have liked it the way that it handles money makes sense to me because it's like a, you absolutely cannot overdraft. You absolutely cannot accidentally spend where you don't think you were you know what i mean it's everything is very clear and apparent Would and it you basically say that it lets simple? you it, yes and it lets you set your finances basically you. on like auto, like autopilot right which which is exactly what i want with my money like i i do not want to be maintaining a ledger i do not want to be noting every single transaction that i make as i make it um Aaron i don't want to think about strongly money against blockchain here <laughs> Well, blockchain's fine because it does it for you, I suppose. Like, yeah. if blockchain was like you had to write a note in some sort of text file every time there was a, a yeah. change of hands or something, it would become a problem. <laughs> but, uh, but I realized like I've been searching. So basically, now I have to move to like some other bank and use a budgeting software. Yeah. Um, because Simple had the budgeting software built into the bank itself. You basically could create almost like an infinite number of sub-accounts, which are called expenses. It's like little buckets where you say, you know, I pay this much amount a month in RAN. I pay this much amount in this and then in that. And anytime there's a transaction, like, you know, anytime I pay the person who I pay rent to, it automatically draws out of my expenses budget. So like the money I have in there, I know is my spending money. Mm -hmm. Like I know this money is free. I can spend it. When I run out of it. I'm done, but it doesn't mean, Oh no, my expenses are screwed. What am I going to do? Yeah, You have zero um, money, zero money in your account. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and it does a lot of, of auto-saving and stuff like that. And the fact that it's tied to your banking account means there's no, you never have a oopsie, uh-oh mm-hmm. moment, which is like when you don't make a lot of money and like, I'm not trying to like make it out that I'm like in utter poverty or destitution, but I, I don't make that much money comparatively. Like, um, so like, and cost of living is fairly expensive in California, even though I'm in a place where it's a little bit less. So, you know, I don't have like just like a huge margin. <laughs> so right. if I have a oopsie doopsie, it's a big deal. And that's kind of what I liked about Simple. And now I'm finding all these budgeting apps are like super um, just insane about their belief about how you should think about money. And the idea that you should yeah they're all very opinionated you have you should have money anxiety all day long, and that will make you a good person and make you quote unquote a saver and become debt free you know what i don't want I don't want no, I can't live like that, no, so yeah. I don't know what I'm gonna do yeah. it's bad news this is uh it's all p n c s fault p n c has a history of acquiring good banks and ruining them national City. Yeah. Uh, yeah. simple via BBVA, which, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't know. PNC bad. We don't love it. Let's, go, uh, go away. PNC, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and say they're canceled. Yeah. But if anybody has any budgeting uh, stuff they use, I'm trying out this new app called Nudge It, like budget with, but with nudge. Hmm. That's similar to how simple works, but again, it's not directly tied to my bank account, so like transactions aren't automatic and... Mm-hmm. Um, it's just make believe in my budget. It's not like the money is in that app, <laughs> right? which is how it was with simple. So I don't know, but, uh, I'm absolutely not going to use, uh, what's that popular one? Like you need a, uh, you need a, yeah. Why You need a budget. That's the one Y-Nab. I use. <laughs> why not can suck my butthole. Um, <laughs> it's just like so opinionated about how you should think about money. And I absolutely will not. Um, I want to think about my money as little as humanly possible because I hate money so much that even our show notes, I refuse to, um, spell it correctly. So there. Uh, I'm still mad about it. I'm still mad. You know, it's, you know, yeah. Straight in front of a tram. Anyway. (laughs) Speaking of trams. Uh, Amtrak, this is an article in Streets Blog USA, uh, which is interesting because this is about rails, not streets, but we'll gloss over that for the time being. (laughs) Um, Amtrak is aiming to deprioritize profitability and focus on radically expanding its service with the help of the next infrastructure bill and help intercity rail take its rightful place as an essential component of our public transportation ecosystem rather than a quasi-private afterthought. Okay. Um, yeah, so Amtrak seems to be getting the right idea now um, about like, because um, Amtrak for a while has been like trying to become profitable because it's like nominally a company. Um, yeah. But, but you know, it doesn't really need to be because it's a publicly owned corporation. So why doesn't it just provide a public service in the form of really good intercity rail transportation, uh, which people have been yelling at Amtrak for literally decades to do. It sounds like they're, uh, uh, I mean, there's the map, right? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Sounds like they're getting the idea now. Uh, Amtrak mm. CEO Bill Flynn penned a letter to the newly seated Congress calling for the long overdue establishment of an intercity passenger rail trust fund, in addition to a host of other forms aimed at boldly growing the route map. Um, and it, it might happen. Uh, basically, um, there was this. I don't act. know if Joe Biden wants to become the train president. Yeah, he, it better he, I mean, he's going to have to have to like nuke the filibuster or do something, but yeah. I don't think he's shown any sign that he's going to he any any vote that comes down to uh 50-50, he just gives up on. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. They're asking for for basically more than triple the amount that they get now, uh which would uh yeah, be real helpful. Yeah. Um do it. Yeah. Um, Congress has tried to zero Amtrak's funding at least half a dozen times. Uh, and for years, every time Amtrak went out in the public, it seemed like someone was bashing the, on them for being a, quote, communist transportation mode or a boondoggle. Over time, Amtrak developed a kind of whipped dog syndrome. You don't want to grow. You don't want to stick your hand up asking for anything more because someone then might attack you. Um, of course, in 1994, um, they tried to become profitable by cutting a lot of their routes back which just plunged their ridership and revenues further. So they undid that. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, uh, things have been looking up in 2019 before the pandemic, Amtrak set records for revenue and passenger trips. Um, and so they're trying to, to build off of that some more. Um, and, uh, yeah, um, you know, they note that, uh, Note here, My the hard thing- costs of running Amtrak are pretty much fixed. We have X number of locomotives and X number of railroad t- ties. But every time you take a train out of service, that's fewer people paying a fare to cover those costs. Frequency makes the financials on those trains better and better. So they're trying to r- run more trains more frequently. That makes sense. Yeah. But you said it was a communist boondoggle. And, like, you know, that sounds cool. Like, a. Uh- do you know? Do you, uh, you know? know about I wish. Boon- I wish it was a communist boondoggle. It <laughs> would probably about- be a lot better and more expansive. <laughs> yeah. Um. Do you remember? I don't know if you ever made these, but uh, you know, boondoggles like the I'm putting a link in the show notes right now. Um, mm. that are like keychain boondoggles. Have you Have you seen these before? Oh, these had a name. I never knew these <laughs> had a name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like why this is was this like a bad a, thing this was like a summer camp activity for, for yeah me. yeah these things are delightful it's like you get these like weird strands of plastic plastic th- yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> thread or something i don't know yeah. and plastic you, cording yeah and you it. like bend them you, across each other you're basically like weaving like a sort of rope yeah exactly out of this cording and you can do different patterns and different designs and you make keychains out of them um, that's delightful. So what if boondoggles, but communists, you know, I don't know. People Is that have been anything? Asking. Yeah. Speaking of boondoggles, you mm. heard about this, uh, F 35. I have, I have it. Um, it's it a really like a... great plane that came together very quickly and cheaply. <laughs> the F stands for Ferrari, apparently. Hmm. so the u.s air force basically came out and admitted that the f-35 is a failure (laughs) wow wow yeah i didn't expect that 
The F-35 supply chain does not have enough spare parts available to keep aircraft flying enough of the time necessary to meet warfighter requirements. Several yeah. factors contributed to these part shortages, including F-35 parts breaking more often than expected and DOD's limited capability to repair parts when they break. The, so, the F-35 joins the, the legions of uh, failed recent military procurement programs alongside the Zumwalt-class destroyer and the future combat system. So one for the Air Force now. We love it. Yeah, it's um, just like you can't make anything. We suck at it. Yeah, um, it's kind of remarkable how completely screwed up military procurement is these days that it's like, you know, uh, so... This the F thirty five program originated in like the nineteen eighties, basically. Mm -hmm. That's when they first, and then the the actual the actual program started in nineteen ninety seven. The first flight took place in two thousand six, and then it it wasn't properly introduced until twenty fifteen. And it's also like the most expensive, I think, pro procurement program in history. Um you know, taken together, like it's cost an unbelievable amount of money to build a handful of fighter jets that do way more than we ever need. Uh, yeah. And yet are, and yet are like deeply unreliable. And yeah, I mean, this it's is the just, thing is like, we're building these extremely advanced fighter jets when like most of the nations of the world are still flying around MiG 21s built in like the 1970s. Like <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's, it's funny because the way, uh, who is this, who is this, uh, air force chief of staff, general Charles Q Brown said, I want Charlie to moderate. Brown. I want to moderate how much we're using these those aircraft. You don't drive your Ferrari to work every day. You only drive it on Sundays. This is our high end. We want to make sure we don't use it all for the low end fight. We don't want to burn up capability now and wish we had it later. Now, like, <laughs> this is hilarious so, because... So we're making luxury military equipment. Cool. This is, this is hilarious because the entire point of the F-35 program was like, we're going to make a small light fighter that we can have a lot of and like we'll have those because they'll be small and cheap. And now it's like, How oh, it no, this is, this is the Lamborghini of our fighters. We're only going to use them when we really need them. It's like, OK. Yeah. How it began, how it's going. Yeah. It's very Tremendous. bad. Yeah, um, but you know that's how we keep like I don't know a million people in the defense industry still employed. Well, so. and that's the thing. Like we'll do that, but we won't fund Amtrak. Cool. We'll yeah. pay mm -hmm. one point seven trillion dollars on this. <laughs> this is. Uh, <laughs> but we won't give us our two thousand dollar check, and we won't give people trains. We're gonna um, have these Lamborghini planes, but we plan to buy nearly twenty five hundred of them through twenty forty four and keep them in service until twenty seventy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's okay. Yeah. We're only going to use them some of the time. Yeah. Yeah. We truly are a functioning society. We're Nothing loving. is going wrong. Nothing to see yeah. here. Everything's good. <laughs> Ooh. Speaking of capitalism, we've got another ad. We do. Uh, once again, Orson Welles. I'm here at Paul Masson Chateau in California. Almost every night here, there's a wine-tasting party. One of the favorites is Paul Masson Chablis. It's light and crisp. It's delicious. The wine you drink the most should be the best. And they take special care with it here because they know Chablis is America's most popular wine. Paul Masson Chablis. 
I recommend it. Parmesan will sell no wine before it's time. Chablis. Parmesan Chablis. I recommend it. I recommend it. Clap for that, you stupid bastard. Parmesan. Oh, speaking of ads. Yeah, we got this one is deeply funny to me. So, so It's so uh, weird. So, Amazon's workers in Bessemer, Alabama are voting on unionization. Amazon has been doing everything it can to stop them. They made a really bad um like astroturf site that's called Do It Without Dues, which you can go to doitwithoutdues.com and see how bad it is. Um they send out uh, they sent out some mailers instructing uh, employees to vote no, and then also said, "By the way, we put because it's being conducted through this. Um, this vote is being conducted through mail because of the pandemic. So they said, by the way, we've put a uh, a USPS blue box right out in front of the uh, the the distribution center. It's very convenient if you could just drop your ballot there." And uh, almost certainly they've got a camera pointed at it or something. But, yeah. Uh, also, also they put signs on the inside doors of the bathroom stalls. So mm. when you're when you're pooping, you know, you, right. you have to look at this thing that tells you uh, propagandizes you against unions. And they also changed the traffic lights outside mm. of uh, the distribution center because protesters uh you know uh workers would be outside they'd be handing out leaflets and talking to people and promoting the union drive and uh because there was a stoplight there that's where they'd all congregate because more cars would be stopping there they had more people would see them more so they changed the timing of the lights so that less people would be stopping there yeah <laughs> and you know someone actually got hit because of it because it was just such a bad bad time lights and uh there was like an accident and someone almost you know got got killed uh mm. so you know they're really just uh going for it yeah and so their new thing is that they've been uh uh, uh running anti-union ads on twitch when twitch of course being the streaming service that amazon owns um but now Twitch has banned those ads from Amazon, its parent company, and said that uh, they should never have been run in the first K first place. Twitch does not allow political advertising, and these ads should never have been allowed to run on our service. We have removed these ads and are evaluating our review processes to ensure that similar content does not run in the future. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering, you know, how, uh, you know, the folks at the top are thinking about that. I imagine yeah. some heads are going to roll. <laughs> but uh i don't know man i mean i don't know if this is like props to twitch for like kick you know taking it to the manor if it's like i mean we love to see it but also like it's just it's very lull it could also know? be one of those things where they were smarter than the parent company and realized the legal implications so they're actually that looking too. out for amazon because yeah, uh amazon is pretty much well, they're probably doing a lot of unfair labor practices with this yeah. whole anti-union drive. We'll see if they, you know, get fined or, or you know, held responsible. I mean, for that's any of always them, but... the mo. <laughs> as as yeah. we'll talk later in the episode, uh, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just uh, reading their website here. Do it without dues, which says, "Hey, BHM one <laughs> doers, why pay almost five hundred dollars in dues? We've got you covered." Asterisk with high wages, health care, vision, and dental benefits, uh, as well as a safety committee a and an appeals process. Um, and then the asterisk says applies to regular full time employees, which you know is 
So uh, be a doer, not a doer. If you're paying dues, it will be restrictive. Dues mean don'ts. Don't buy that dinner. Don't buy those school supplies. This is just, it's a single page website and it's very bad. Um, and then <laughs> this, this leaflet that they mailed out, it has, you know, it says read and follow the instructions to vote, put the blue envelope in the yellow envelope, seal the yellow envelope, mail it over. Then it says vote no to save almost 500 per year in dues and keep the benefits you already enjoy for Amazon. And then it has a bunch of things that you pay for the union with dues they collect from your paycheck every month. Uh, Amazon already has an associate safety committee and a disciplinary appeals process. Why pay out of your paycheck to get what you already have, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> to get what you already yeah. have. Come on, man. <laughs> Once a union starts, it's a long and complicated process to undo it. <laughs> These jokers. Well, you yeah. know, that is a problem. People are always saying, gosh, I wish I didn't I, I have really to have this union anymore. Union, yeah. <laughs> a union cannot deliver greater job security or better wages and benefits, which, yeah, it's 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 just really it's ham fisted is what it is. <laughs> yeah, anyhow. that's just the companies are wilding. Um, yeah, the, I hope that it's Amazon a success. <laughs> Amazon's also gone a bit crazy. I know you've noticed this. And I've noticed it, too. Everybody wants you to review everything. Like 80% yeah. of my emails are requests to please review this thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, you buy a thing and then anywhere from 30 seconds to 30 months later, you get an email or ideally multiple emails telling you to review it um, yeah. because of the algorithms. That's how they, you know, things have to be five stars in order to, you know, be surfaced in the search results. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, it's just a good advertising tactic to have good reviews. So they ask you to review it and they're just constantly emailing me to review things that I bought like six months ago. And it's like, I don't even have that anymore. You know, like, I don't know. I don't know who you are. You know, stop, stop emailing me. Stop emailing my wife, etc. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I, I can't be bothered. I'm sorry. You're you're asking me to do free labor. I'm just and I yeah. Everything our society now revolves around assigning between one and five stars to everything making, that happens making in your the life. consumer do your job. No, you tell me how good it you is. order something from Amazon. You got to rate it five stars. You 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 get a DoorDash. You got to rate it five stars. You go to the doctor. I went to the doctor recently. I received a survey in the mail. Oh no! Oh my gosh! <laughs> and you want to know about my like, experience? And we all know that like this will not result in anything, right? Like no, and I mean there's almost no be... way that it turns out well for like any workers involved, right? Because the yeah. like DoorDash asks you how your delivery was, and if you put one star, then they can the guy who delivered it to you. Yeah, and mm. that's that's no good. That's no good. That and like if I you know problem. if I get if I if I say like oh yeah the doctor's office they were all mean to me like you know that's not going to be good for them. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, no. As a as a worker, I don't like those things at all. I always yeah. give five stars, but please stop it, asking. It me. is an expression of solidarity to ignore any and all review prompts. It's a I meaningless. Think. It's a meaningless statistic too. Like, right. I'm sure yeah. everyone else is like this too. So, I don't know. The, the only ratings that differ from the the only divergent ratings are the Karens. Mm -hmm. What a world! Great, cool. You've built something beautiful. Anyway, Ugh. remember to rate and review this podcast on iTunes <laughs> and Google Podcasts. Um, 
Yeah. And sign up for our Patreon too. Actually, here's the deal. You can, the way you pay for this podcast is you rate and review it. If yeah. not, then you pay for, you literally pay us. If you, if you go to patreon.com slash good stuff and you pay us money, you, you are absolved from needing to yeah. review us. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, oh, speaking of I pain. think you saw this one. This is um, a vertical which this, we haven't touched in a while. This makes was, me so mad. Uh, we, we were big into this vertical, I think, back in like seasons one and two. This is the, uh, you know, the uh, financial advice vertical. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is from... Uh, 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 CNBC make it, uh, uh, by Sam Dogan, the financial samurai, which seems like a bit of cultural appropriation to me, but sure. Mm. S- samurai well known for their, uh, their financial <laughs> oh, prowess. Oh, what would, you have capital and a top knot. Okay. What w- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what a financial Ronin would be like, like a financial <laughs> samurai's lost his master. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah, gonna no, look up I'm what a this financial guy looks like. Oh, what? What? <laughs> Wait, what? no, no, because simple, because simple shutting down. You're a financial Ronin now. I, I, I am a financial Ronin. You are a financial Ronin. <laughs> There's this no is, pictures of it. <laughs> if this you is an Google Sam, if you Google Sam Dogan financial samurai on Google image search, mm-hmm. do it right now. It's incredible. Sam Sam Dogan financial. I'm gonna let the listeners do this too, even samurai. if you're driving. I misspelled samurai. Uh, yeah, well, images. who among us? It's there's who is he? Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of there's like just yeah. four hundred different faces. Yeah, I don't know. They who's are who all. Here. This is like Spartacus. Like I am Sam Dogan. I am Sam Dogan. Also, do you see the financial samurai logo? Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a, a lot. Little bit, it's a little bit. <laughs> it's it's of a lot. lot going on uh, here. Um, the financial samurai is is slashed in twain, which we it love. is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Hi. I think um, it's is it this guy? No, this is this is Theo Hicks. Who is he? I don't know. I'm on his website, and there's not a picture of him on his website. Although he does say that he's uh, um. You know, he's uh, been writing about fire since tw- 2009 and is proud to see it explode in popularity since. So um, just to give you an idea of what we're about to get into to here, yeah. this is the... Uh, All right. All right. Sorry. I, I that was distracting. Let me rub my hands yeah, together, yeah. get ready for this. Um, okay. Here's the, here's the headline. Millionaire who bought a home at 26 regrets paying off his mortgage early. This is the biggest downside <laughs> no one tells you. <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, at at uh, yeah. Um, bought a condo uh, cool. in San cool, Francisco. Cool. Um, okay. Yeah. Became obsessed uh-huh. with trying to pay off the mortgage early in 2015. My wife and I finally did it. Eliminating one of our largest reoccurring expenses felt so satisfying. With one less burden, we could live more freely. But just a year later, that feeling went away, along with the fire to improve my finances. Um. There are several studies citing the psychological benefits of paying off debt early, such as emotional relief and the strength to avoid slipping back into debt. Um, And then the rest of the article is basically, however, (laughs) um, (laughs) after being mortgage free, my wife and I live comfortably off the severance checks we negotiated when we quit our six figure jobs in finance. By that time, we had amassed a net worth of $3 million and the $150,000 in annual passive income, mostly from real estate, dividend stocks, and bonds. Um, 
just you can't see it, but I've lifted my glasses upon my forehead and I'm just rubbing my eyes so yeah. hard. I can't with this crap. But my entire attitude slowly changed once I sent <sighs> that final mortgage check. I stopped aggressively looking for new freelance consulting work. I went from taking on three contracts per month to just one. So instead of working 60 hours, I was only working 20 hours. I had around $10,000 per contract. I was losing out on $20,000 of monthly income. To reward ourselves for paying off the mortgage, my wife and I also took a month-long trip to Asia. Uh, we spent more than 10000 on the entire trip. It was a lot of time off, so much that I was behind by $50,000 on my goal to reach 200000 in annual passive income. Um, if I could go back, are you ready? If I could go back, I would have spent less time vacationing and more time buying rental properties and investing in dividend stocks. What is your problem? Yeah. Um, I just, I don't, I just, who gave this person permission? Well, it's really? basically the suggestion here is that like you pay something off and then you're not anxious about money anymore. And that's bad. It's bad. See, this is the ideology yeah. that I'm talking about. It's like, you must always be thinking about money. It should yeah, be I mean, he's religion. talking, he went from, he went from working 60 hours a week to 20 hours a week and like, dude, that's good. Enjoy it. <laughs> Like oh, what this guy oh no, needed, I don't what have this to guy sweat needed, over my money. Uh, what this guy needed was a hobby. <laughs> you, you just seriously, need a hobby. Seriously, pick up a football. Pick up a football. I'm telling you. Who's in charge around here? It's just like, what is wrong with these people? I hate. I hate when I am trying to get to two hundred thousand dollars in annual passive income, which consists of me taking people's income for rent. Uh and I don't reach that goal. It's very sad to me. It makes me despondent. I have to get antidepressants, etc. This person's more money than I probably ever will. You know? We have to put an end to this madness. Yes, I ag I agree completely. So, oh uh, man, I don't want to think about. I can't. I can't. I just. I have no empathy <laughs> for it. Give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Just I. These people. These people to have to have an anchor tied around their neck and be thrown into the middle of the Pacific Ocean would mm. be an end too good for them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I, yeah. Oh wait. Oh, do you have more? Here. Wait. Wait. Yep. 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 I'd just say you know we could relieve them of their financial burdens entirely by just expropriating all of their wealth. You know. Then you'll be. Then you'll be. You you want to feel hungry? We'll make you feel hungry. Oh, I'll make you feel hungry again. <laughs> we need like a more aggro chime between <laughs> segments for like when I'm just so pissed off. I want to leave the segment. Yeah, uh, yeah. What Someone you make could us speed like it a, up, like maybe. A, yeah, like a hardcore version of it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I've 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 we've been talking about this i think you and i sort of off and on uh yeah, privately yeah. and we've sort of coalesced we've come up with a a, a unified theory um which the is that the ni 1970s was the inflection point when everything started to go wrong um yeah. and uh, quite a lot of things happened in the 1970s um, I would say like, it's a confluence point you know like maybe there were things happening before then but it's when 
It's when the shit that was flying through the air ultimately hit the fan, which began to spread it and aerosolize it. It's sort of like, um, what is that short story that's like the machine that nobody knows how it works, but it keeps running, and then one day it shuts off, but nobody nobody knows how to fix it. They just assume that someone else is going to fix it. And then one day it just stops working entirely. And the 1970s was basically when things started to shut off. Yeah. And no one knew how to fix it. And like we've all seen, you know, the first thing we've got here in the show notes you can see is like we've all seen the graph. This is yeah. this is called the, the graph. chart, the chart, the, the chart. Graph. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the chart of productivity versus worker compensation. And you notice that it starts to diverge rapidly in 1973. Um, yeah. In uh, from ni- the period of 1948 to 1973, worker productivity increased 100 percent. Hourly compensation increased 91.3 percent. So pretty much in line. From 1973 to 2013, productivity increased 74%. Hourly compensation increased 9%. So wages have stagnated since uh, 1970. Um, It's basically been a flat line. A flat line or even a line going down a little bit. When you you think about inflation and all that, yeah. Yeah. Um, 1970s was also real big for deregulation. Championed by Alfred Kahn, the Brookings Institution, and the American Enterprise Institute. A um, little tour of deregulation that happened in, in the 70s. You had the Railroad Revitalization and Regulatory Reform Act in 1976, airline deregulation of 1978, and then uh, they didn't technically happen until 1980, but they were theorized earlier, the Staggers Rail Act and the Motor Carrier Act of 1980, uh, which deregulated the trucking industry. Also, the telephone system, as we've discussed, was heavily deregulated through the 70s before being, uh, you know, totally deregulated in the 1980s. Um, so that's yeah. cool. We love that. Um, <laughs> that, yeah. Um, uh, the oil you, and energy crises uh, in both yeah. 1973 and 1979, um, which uh, um, I listen, I think there is a citations needed about the energy crises and how basically you're taught that like in 1973, OPEC embargoed the u.s and so you know our oil supply was down and that's why demand spiked so much um our oil supply was actually not really affected by that at all yeah yeah (laughs) it it was just an opportunity to raise prices massively and then they did it again in 1979 (laughs) yeah it was the stonks boys going crazy going buck wild uh, it was literally just the oil companies manipulating prices. So yeah, um, we yeah. love that. At the um, same time, you also had union membership uh, declining. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna admonish everyone as I always do to just just please read um, b- before picking up a football. Pick up a collective bargain by Jane McAlevey. Um, it's a very good read about unions in the United States and the history, and it's done just like. Super simple, easy to understand, but very interesting. She tells a lot of cool stories and about kind of what we need to do. But uh, you basically had 50 years, you know, after the 70s of shrinking union membership and sort of like what accounts for this, the the issue of union membership in the United States. So like for one thing, um, there was this transition from the most most people who were union members in the United States prior to the seventies were, were in, were in private unions, not public sector unions. 
Mm. Which are different, right? A private sector union is like you work for um, the auto industry, right? Yeah, and you're Amazon. in that union. <laughs> or, yeah. Um, or a public union, you work for the government. And there are unions, you know, like teachers unions or right. for Tax federal me. workers, etc. Yeah. Um, and there was a huge transition that happened. So like in 1973, 24% were in private unions by 2014 it was six percent it's jumped up a little bit in 2020 to 10% but like you know we're far less than half mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. union membership um why did the decline happen in the 70s so mostly prosperity that happened because of unions because of the post-war boom sort of blinded workers um and businesses increased like bad labor laws like or like they increased the use of bad labor laws that happened in the late 40s but they didn't really have a need for because of this boom but they start you know the greed started growing the profit motive is always there and it's gonna it's it's uh it's gonna happen so so basically um yeah i don't want to read this whole quote i've got a lot of stuff in the show notes if you want to read it but you have unfriendly courts so like Between the 40s and 70s, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of unions' positions nearly 80% of the time. After 1970, that percentage dropped to 50%. So you have some sort of changes happening in the courts. Um, The interesting statistics of the percentage of the labor force participating in NLRA uh, elections each year declines. Like in the 1950s to 60s, it was 1%. The 70s, 0.78%. 1980s 0.28%. So there's just like a lot of lot less union action happening. People don't feel the need to do it. Mm-hmm. Elections one is interesting. In the 1940s, um, you know, the number of people who tried to form a union and succeeded was like 80%. Mm-hmm. In the 1977, it was 50%. Yeah. And I'm sure it's even worse these days. <laughs> Yeah, the percentage of first contract wins. So, you know, you're 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 forming a union, you want you negotiate a contract. In the 1950s, it was 86% of people got their first round of negotiations the union won. 1970s it fell to 70%, 1990s 56%. I'm sure it's gone down since then. Um the the increased use of like anti-labor tactics like captive audience sessions and huge increase of anti-union consultant firms. Mm-hmm. Um well, I was on the I was on the website of an anti-union like a a, a consultancy um, mm-hmm. that consults for like you know like oh if you think a union might be getting formed and th- I was on their website and it was wild it's <laughs> the stuff that they, they had on their website <laughs> yeah it's big money for them too they make a lot of money because they're working for the boss they're working yeah, for and, the people with the money right exactly and they'll pay just about any amount of money to stop unions from from happening so. There was also uh, a sort of um, inadvertent consequence of the civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement led to this legislation that got a huge quantity of women and people of color into federal and state jobs who were previously, you know, uh, working in in the private sector. And Mm -hmm. then and that gave them good union jobs. But what it meant is it it called sort of like consolidated the percentage of union jobs into the public sector rather than the private sector sector 
So um, also, if you reduce the the size of the state, which is what the neoliberal project began, you know, in the right. 70s, uh, that means you're going to lose a bunch of union jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's nothing that the unions can do because the state can, you know, you can legislate, you can change the, the size of the state however you want. Right. Um, Public unions are inherently weaker. You can't strike. You're subject to like the whims of 50 states laws. You know, it's, it's just, it's just a different situation. So just the huge decimation of the unions movement in the United States, I think is a huge factor. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you had, uh, of course, inflation, which um, was partially born out of things like the 1973 and 1979, um, energy crises crises. yeah um uh, so inflation was quite high coupled with bad economic growth at this time uh you know interest rates were sky high (laughs) people don't realize that like they've been relying on these keynesian economics um that are is sort of a way to make capitalism work right um and and the the you basically the capitalists have to sacrifice allowing to have like a solid welfare state you know mm-hmm. all right we'll give you a welfare state that will sort of smooth out a lot of the consequences of capitalism um but then you get greedy and you destroy the welfare state and oops everything yep. gets chaotic <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah. we're su- we're surprised at that <laughs> um then you've got outsourcing uh, outsourcing, outsourcing became very prevalent in the 1970s, uh, the rise of information technology, which allowed instantaneous cheap communication over very long distances meant that you could now move jobs, uh, to other countries because they could get done just as well. Um, so you can encourage outsourcing, offshoring outsourcing allows a reduction of your labor costs and then increase profits. Yeah. And then there's a quote from an article in, uh, the week from 2011, that's a, about, Uh, Where have America's jobs gone? And this is, when did offshoring become so prevalent? The trend began in earnest in the late 1970s at large manufacturers such as General Electric. GE's then-CEO, Jack Welch, who was widely respected by other corporate chieftains, argued that public corporations owe their primary allegiance to stockholders, not employees. Therefore, Welch said, companies should seek to lower costs and maximize profits by moving operations wherever is cheapest. Ideally, Welch said, you'd have every plant you own on a barge to move with currencies and changes in the economy. Not only did GE offshore much of its manufacturing, so did its parts suppliers, who were, which were instructed at GE-orchestrated supplier migration seminars to migrate or be out of business. Uh, by the way, let's just check in on <laughs> GE now. What's GE doing now? And see how they're doing. Um, I'm just going to put in, uh, let me do GE stock. Um, oh, their stock's trading at $12.54. All that costed was wrecking our economy and our and our country. Yeah. Cool. Um, you know what also I should point out here is that when you offshore, you also uh, get rid of having to deal with these pesky unions, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed, yes, because you just eliminate those those jobs and those unions in their entirety. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I just want to note, uh, uh, GE, um, since, since Jack Welch took the helm of GE, GE has been on a pretty steady decline, um, and at this point, they are basically a financial services company that also happens to make like jet engines and wind turbines. Uh, but it was Jack Welch who got them into the financial services thing. Um, 
And then they lost a whole bunch of money after September 11th, having to pay out a bunch of insurance claims. Um, and uh, they've been basically selling off all of their um, things that actually do stuff. Like they used to make appliances. That's been sold off. They used to make light bulbs. That's been sold off. They used to make locomotives. That's been sold off. Um, so it's a company that's winding down in a sense to basically yeah. just be, you know, another financial institution. Um, which is great. We love it. <laughs> As if, if, if Madonna was to, um, it come on the scene today, the song would be, we're living in a financial world and I am a financial girl, right? Like yeah. <laughs> nothing material happens anymore. It's all just, uh, moving, moving rows and columns and spreadsheets. And that, and somehow that equates with, uh, money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you had the collapse of Bretton Woods as well, which was the system of fixed exchange rates um, between foreign currencies and the dollar, and then the dollar being pegged to a fixed amount in gold, i.e. the gold standard. Um, Stagflation caused this to be untenable, so one day Nixon just said, "Uh, yeah, actually, the uh, dollar's not tied to any value in gold anymore. Um, And that basically upended the financial system of the world overnight um and they had to sort of sort it out and basically decided that now money money has no intrinsic value it has money because we all agree that it has or it has value because we all agree that it has value um and also all of our currencies um float now they're not they're not pegged at a specific ratio they all well they're they're pegged to your expectation of a future uh profit which is right. con- which is continually a moving target, right? Well, and exchange rates are free floating now too, which means that yeah. people can make massive money manipulating currency markets and nearly bankrupt the entire uh, nation of the United Kingdom, um, like George Soros did back in the eighties. Um, f- fun little aside about him. Um, <laughs> Good work. Good work. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, we just have money that is. Uh, you know, it's pretend really, this is when money became pretend. Um, and that ideology sort of bleeds into like the last thing you have here, which, which is the, and this yeah. go, goes in line with I, what Jack Welch was talking about, which is the shareholder primacy. Yeah. And I'm prepared to assign blame for all of the things we've discussed to this principle and potentially to a single man, um, mm. shareholder primacy, which was, uh, a primarily advocated by one Milton Friedman, uh, and it became the pinnacle of his Friedman Doctrine, which he uh, intimated in the 1970 in the New York Times. He said, in a free enterprise private property system, a corporate executive is an employee of the owners of the business. He has direct responsibility to his employers. That responsibility is to conduct the business in accordance with their desires. The key point is that in his capacity as a corporate executive, the manager is the agent of the individuals who own the corporation and his primary responsibility is to them. So, so basically not to the business itself, but to the shareholders of the business. Right. The idea of shareholder primacy is basically that um, uh, a corporation Line has no <laughs> corporation has no higher purpose than maximizing profits for their shareholders. Yeah. So, and that Even is, if it and, kills and, every single person on the planet beside and, and, their shareholders. Right. And Milton Friedman, in fact, argued that the corporation's only purpose was maximizing profits for its shareholders and that um, a company should not and cannot have any other responsibilities, be they social responsibilities or any other, uh, you know, um, sort of moral 
um, which responsibilities is a big or anything like that. From the Keynesian worldview, which we're talking about, that like, you know, there is this sort of understanding of responsibility towards society to some degree. Now, that doesn't make, oh, capitalism was nice and friendly before this. It, you know, not really, but there was a sort of balance in some way. Right. And this I mean, ba- even- basically said, no, no, none of that. Even back at the turn of the 20th century, Henry Ford recognized that he needed to pay his workers a decent wage and provide them health care to keep them healthy. You and know? to make sure that, like, you you need customers to buy your cars. Right. That's, yeah, <laughs> you I mean. kill everybody. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Henry Ford, the, the, so many people went to work for him because he paid really well in his factory, you know, yeah. to the point where you could save up and buy one of the cars you yourself were building. Um, but yeah, Friedman argued, he said, insofar as a business executive's actions in, a, in accord with his social responsibility reduce returns to stockholders, he is spending their, i.e. the so- stockholders, money. Um, and he argued that appropriate agents of social causes are individuals uh, and not stockholders, which, of course, we, we love individualism and uh, right. individual action. Um, yeah. Uh, we we love to yeah ba- basically Milton Friedman is a big uh, no plastic straws guy. <laughs> um, Ideology. So this 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 business this this ethos of shareholder primacy is basically what then led to um, you know maximizing profits, uh, which then had these effects of outsourcing and decreased union membership and you know manipulating the energy and oil markets. And getting deregulation so that you could just suck as much money as possible. Uh, it out basically of provided pockets. the perfect excuse for why maximum extraction don't matter anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Why that's not a discussion. We don't. Um, we don't need to talk about that. A fun thing is that the shareholder primacy theory led to a a rise in stock based compensation for executives. So rather than paying executives a salary, you pay them in the form of stock. The idea that like the returns of the company, um, you know, are, are then a uh, you know, if they want to uh, increase their income, they increase the sh- the the stocks, right? Which then accords to both the shareholders and then also the CEO at that point. Um, this has led to a very perverse incentive, um, which was noted by uh, Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders in the New York Times, who said, uh, um, has led executives to enrich themselves by implementing stock buybacks. Um, so basically, you know, if you're being paid in stock and you control the company you can just spend a bunch of the company's money on buying back stocks and that's basically putting the company's money right into your own pocket because you're decreasing the number of shareholders increasing the size of the shares or you know right. you're, yeah. you're you're inflating the the value well, you're, of you're the buying shares. back the stock that you've been given so you're giving right. yourself money yeah <laughs> which is cool we love that um yeah that's basically every company these days is just doing massive stock buybacks mainly well, for and this what's, reason what's what's also is insane is that even to the utter detriment of the company itself so now the shareholders are a leech not just on the economy but on the actual business so you have companies that cannot turn a profit cannot produce anything cannot succeed but they're providing their a little bit of sap to the shareholders who are just milking it until it dies. Yeah, and this leads to to stagnation because basically all these companies take all their profits and instead of reinvesting them in research and design and things like that, uh, they just buy back their stock, which basically, you know, um, 
kills that money. You know, it's not a useful yeah. use of that or productive. It takes use the money, of money out of the market, really. You know, yeah, and it puts exactly. it into bank accounts. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened in the 1970s, and that's why everything sucks today. Yeah. So if you're ever wondering, gee, <laughs> yeah, when did when did this happened? all start to go wrong? I hope we've helped. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it sucks, man. I have no idea what I'm doing I was not prepared for this I'm trying and I'm learning Thank you for your patience There's so many mistakes I have already made But I'm working to be better day by day And I think I'm gonna make it But for now I'll say I have no idea what I'm doing what 